Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. Not a whole lot to say before we start this episode, uh, just kind of all the normal, basic, boring stuff. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to Matthias Hansen, a new uh, patron on Patreon. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Um, also, a big thank you to Alder Riley, Mark Vincent, Eric Braun, and Chris Cowley for their support on Patreon. It really means a lot to me that uh, that that you guys are doing that. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. the uh, the The story for the bonus for the ten dollar tier on Patreon has officially started. The prologue went out on Wednesday. And um, this is the first episode that uh, that it's out. It is uh, it is a book called The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. It is one of the first examples of um, the detective novel in literary history. Uh, and uh, it, it kind of sets out all of the tropes and all of the conventions of the of the detective novel. And on top of that, it's just a really good story. And um, the first half of the story is told from the viewpoint of of like the butler of the house, Gabriel Betteridge, and he's really kind of funny. He's really funny, and I really, I'm really enjoying reading it. Um, later on, uh, my wife is actually going to be reading a second segment of the story, and I know that a lot of you like her reading, and I don't blame you. She's better than I am. Uh, so um, just uh, if you want to get in on that, the $10 tier on Patreon uh, will get you access to that story. Um, otherwise, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I know this is a rough time for a lot of people, and I know that there are uh, there's a lot of like financial trouble going on, and I know that some people, um, I know that there are some people who are very saddened at the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, for one reason or another, and um, that you're just staring down that barrel with just dread. Um, but uh, just know that. Just know that you are important and that you matter and that um, if you need help, if you find yourself in crisis, please talk to somebody. Um, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is always uh, is always open and available. Uh, I've got the number in the show notes. So if you feel like you need, you know, some sort of help, talk to somebody. All right. Because you're worth it. The Great Return by Arthur Machen. Chapter 1. The Rumor of the Marvelous There are strange things lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. I often think that the most extraordinary item of intelligence that I have read in print appeared a few years ago in the London press. It came from a well-known and most respected news agency. I imagine it was all in the papers. It was astounding. The circumstances necessary, not to the understanding of this paragraph, for that is out of the question, but we will say to the understanding of the events which made it possible, are these. We had invaded Tibet, and there had been trouble in the hierarchy of that country, and a personage known as the Tashe Lama had taken refuge with us in India. He went on pilgrimage from one Buddhist shrine to another and came at last to a holy mountain of Buddhism, the name of which I have forgotten. And thus, the morning paper. His Holiness, the Tashe Lama, then ascended the mountain and was transfigured. Reuter. That was all. And from that day to this, I have never heard a word of explanation 
or comment on this amazing statement. There was no more, it seemed, to be said. Reuter apparently thought he had made his simple statement of the facts of the case, had thereby done his duty, and so it all ended. Nobody, so far as I know, ever wrote to any paper asking what Reuter meant by it or what the Tashe Lama meant by it. I suppose the fact was that nobody cared twopence about the matter, and so this strange event, if there were any such event, was exhibited to us for a moment, and the lantern show revolved to other spectacles. This is an extreme instance of the manner in which the marvelous is flashed out to us and then withdrawn behind its black veils and concealments, but I have known of other cases. Now and again, at intervals of a few years, there appear in the newspapers strange stories of the strange doings of what are technically called poltergeists. Some house, often a lonely farm, is suddenly subjected to an infernal bombardment. Great stones crash through the windows, thunder down the chimneys, impelled by no visible hand. The plates and cups and saucers are whirled from the dresser into the middle of the kitchen. No one can say how or by what agency. Upstairs, the big bedstead and an old chest or two are heard bounding on the floor as if in a mad ballet. Now and then, such doings as these excite a whole neighborhood. Sometimes a London paper sends a man down to make an investigation. He writes half a column of description on the Monday, a couple of paragraphs on the Tuesday, and then returns to town. Nothing has been explained, the matter vanishes away, and nobody cares. The tale trickles for a day or two through the press, and then instantly disappears, like an Australian stream into the bowels of darkness. It is possible, I suppose, that this singular incuriousness as to marvelous events and reports is not wholly unaccountable. It may be that the events in question are, as it were, psychic accidents and misadventures. They are not meant to happen, or rather to be manifested. They belong to the world on the other side of the dark curtain, and it is only by some queer mischance that a corner of that curtain is twitched aside for an instant. Then, for an instant, we see, but the personages whom Mr. Kipling calls the lords of life and death take care that we do not see too much. Our business is with things higher and things lower, with things different anyhow, and on the whole, we are not suffered to distract ourselves with that which does not really concern us. The transfiguration of the llama and the tricks of the poltergeist are evidently no affairs of ours. We raise an uninterested eyebrow and pass on, to poetry or to statistics. Be it noted, I am not professing any fervent personal belief in the reports to which I have alluded. For all I know, the llama, in spite of Reuter, was not transfigured, and the poltergeist, in spite of the late Mr. Andrew Lang, may in reality only be mischievous Polly, the servant girl at the farm. And to go farther, I do not know that I should be justified in putting either of these cases of the marvelous in line with a chance paragraph that caught my eye last summer, for this had not, on the face of it at all events, anything wildly out of the common. Indeed, I dare say that I should not have read it, should not have seen it, if it had not contained the name of a place which I had once visited, which had then moved me in an odd manner that I could not understand. Indeed, I am sure that this particular paragraph deserves to stand alone, for even if the poltergeist be a real poltergeist, it merely reveals the psychic whimsicality of some region that is not our region. 
There were better things and more relevant things behind the few lines dealing with Lantresan, the little town by the sea in Arfenshire. Not on the surface, I must say, for the cutting I have preserved it, reads as follows. Lantresan. The season promises very favorably. Temperature of the sea yesterday at noon, 65 degrees. Remarkable occurrences are supposed to have taken place during the recent revival. The lights have not been observed lately. The crown, the fisherman's rest. The style was odd, certainly, knowing a little of newspapers. I could see that the figure called, I think, cutting had been generously employed. The exuberances of the local correspondent had been pruned by a Fleet Street expert, and these poor men are often hurried. But what did those lights mean? What strange matters had the vehement blue pencil blotted out and brought to naught? That was my first thought. And then, thinking still of L'Entresant and how I had first discovered it and found it strange, I read the paragraph again, and was saddened almost to see, as I thought, the obvious explanation. I had forgotten, for the moment, that it was wartime, that scares and rumors and terrors about traitorous signals and flashing lights were current everywhere by land and sea. Someone, no doubt, had been watching innocent farmhouse windows and thoughtless fanlights of lodging houses. These were the lights that had not been observed lately. I found out afterwards that the L'Entresant correspondent had no such treasonous lights in his mind, but something very different. Still, what do we know? He may have been mistaken. The great rose of fire that came over the deep may have been the port light of a coasting ship. Did it shine at last from the old chapel on the headland? Possibly. Or possibly it was the doctor's lamp at Sarnau, some miles away. I have had wonderful opportunities lately of analyzing the marvels of lying, conscious and unconscious, and indeed almost incredible feats in this way can be performed. If I incline to the less likely explanation of the lights at L'Entresant, it is merely because this explanation seems to me to be altogether congruous with the remarkable occurrences of the newspaper paragraph. After all, if rumor and gossip and hearsay are crazy things to be utterly neglected and laid aside, on the other hand, evidence is evidence. And when a couple of reputable surgeons assert, as they do assert in the case of Olwyn Phillips, Crowswin, Lantresant, that there has been a kind of resurrection of the body, it is merely foolish to say that these things don't happen. The girl was a mass of tuberculosis. She was within a few hours of death, she is now full of life. And so, I do not believe that the rose of fire was merely a ship's light, magnified and transformed by dreaming Welsh sailors. But now, I am going forward too fast. I have not dated the paragraph, so I cannot give the exact day of its appearance, but I think it was somewhere between the second and third week of June. I cut it out partly because it was about L'Entresant, partly because of the remarkable occurrences. I have an appetite for these matters, though I also have this misfortune, that I require evidence before I am ready to credit them, and I have a sort of lingering hope that someday I shall be able to elaborate some scheme or theory of such things. But in the meantime, as a temporary measure, I hold what I call the doctrine of the jigsaw puzzle. That is, this remarkable occurrence, and that, and the other, may be, and usually are, of no significance. Coincidence and chance and unsearchable causes will, now and again, 
make clouds that are undeniable fiery dragons, and potatoes that resemble eminent statesmen exactly and minutely in every feature, and rocks that are like eagles and lions. All this is nothing. It is when you get your set of odd shapes and find that they fit into one another, and at last that they are but parts of a large design, it is then that research grows interesting and indeed amazing. It is then that one queer form confirms the other, that the whole plan displayed justifies, corroborates, explains each separate piece. So, it was within a week or ten days after I had read the paragraph about L'Entresant and had cut it out that I got a letter from a friend who was taking an early holiday in those regions. You will be interested, he wrote, to hear that they have taken to ritualistic practices at L'Entresant. I went into the church the other day, and instead of smelling like a damp vault as usual, it was positively reeking with incense. I knew better than that. The old parson was a firm evangelical. He would rather have burnt sulfur in his church than incense any day. So I could not make out this report at all, and went down to Arfin a few weeks later, determined to investigate this and any other remarkable occurrence at Lantresant. Chapter 2. Odors of Paradise I went down to Arfin in the very heat and bloom and fragrance of the wonderful summer that they were enjoying there. In London there was no such weather. It rather seemed as if the horror and fury of the war had mounted to the very skies and were there reigning. In the mornings the sun burnt down upon the city with a heat that scorched and consumed, but then clouds heavy and horrible would roll together from all quarters of the heavens and early in the afternoon the air would darken, and a storm of thunder and lightning and furious hissing rain would fall upon the streets. Indeed, the torment of the world was in the London weather. The city wore a terrible vesture. Within our hearts was dread. Without, we were clothed in black clouds and angry fire. It is certain that I cannot show in any words the utter peace of that Welsh coast to which I came, one sees, I think, in such a change, a figure of the passage from the disquiets and the fears of the earth to the peace of paradise, a land that seemed to be in a holy, happy dream, a sea that changed all the while from olivine to emerald, from emerald to sapphire, from sapphire to amethyst, that washed in white foam at the bases of the firm gray rocks and about the huge crimson bastions that hid the western bays and inlets of the waters. To this land I came, and to hollows that were purple and odorous with wild thyme, wonderful with many tiny, exquisite flowers. There was benediction in century, pardon in eyebright, joy in lady slipper, and so the weary eyes were refreshed, looking now at the little flowers and the happy bees about them, now on the magic mirror of the deep, changing from marvel to marvel with the passing of the great white clouds with the brightening of the sun, and the ears, torn with jangle and racket and idle empty noise, were soothed and comforted by the ineffable, unutterable, unceasing murmur as the tides swam to and fro, uttering mighty hollow voices in the caverns of the rocks. For three or four days I rested in the sun and smelt the savor of the blossoms and of the salt water, and then, refreshed, I remembered that there was something queer about L'Entresant that I might as well investigate. It was no great thing that I thought to find, for it will be remembered I had ruled out the apparent oddity of the reporter or commissioner's reference to lights on the ground that he must have been referring to some local panic about signaling to the enemy 
who had certainly torpedoed a ship or two off Lundy in the Bristol Channel. All that I had to go upon was the reference to the remarkable occurrences at some revival, and then that letter of Jackson's which spoke of Lantresant Church as reeking with incense, a wholly incredible and impossible state of things. Why, old Mr. Evans, the rector, looked upon colored stoles as the very robe of Satan and his angels, as things dear to the heart of the Pope of Rome. But as to incense, as I have already familiarly observed, I knew better. But as a hard matter of fact, this may be worth noting. When I went over to L'Entresant on Monday, August 9th, I visited the church, and it was still fragrant and exquisite with the odor of rare gums that had fumed there. Now, I happened to have a slight acquaintance with the rector. He was a most courteous and delightful old man, and on my last visit he had come across me in the churchyard as I was admiring the very fine Celtic cross that stands there. Besides the beauty of the interlaced ornaments, there is an inscription in Ogham on one of the edges, concerning which the learned dispute. It is altogether one of the more famous crosses of Keltdom. Mr. Evans, I say, seeing me looking at the cross, came up and began to give me, the stranger, a resume, somewhat of a shaky and uncertain resume I found afterwards, of the various debates and questions that had arisen as to the exact meaning of the inscription, and I was amused to detect an evident but underlying belief of his own, that the supposed Ogham characters were, in fact, due to boys' mischief and weather and the passing of the ages. But then I happened to put a question as to the sort of stone of which the cross was made, and the rector brightened amazingly. He began to talk geology, and, I think, demonstrated that the cross, or the material for it, must have been brought to L'Entresant from the southwest coast of Ireland. This struck me as interesting, because it was curious evidence of the migrations of the Celtic saints, whom the rector, I was delighted to find, looked upon as good Protestants. Though shaky on the subject of crosses, and so with concessions on my part, we got on very well. Thus, with all this to the good, I was emboldened to call upon him. I found him altered. Not that he was aged. Indeed, he was rather made young, with a singular brightening upon his face and something of joy upon it that I had not seen before, that I have seen on very few faces of men. We talked of the war, of course, since that is not to be avoided, of the farming prospects of the county, of general things, till I ventured to remark that I had been in the church and had been surprised to find it perfumed with incense. You have made some alterations in the service since I was last here. You use incense now? The old man looked at me strangely and hesitated. No, he said, there has been no change. I use no incense in the church. I should not venture to do so. But, I was beginning, the whole church is as if high mass had just been sung there, and he cut me short, and there was a certain grave solemnity in his manner that struck me almost with awe. I know you are a railer, he said, and the phrase coming from this mild old gentleman astonished me unutterably. You are a railer, and a bitter railer. I have read articles that you have written, and I know your contempt and your hatred for those you call Protestants in your derision. Though your grandfather, the vicar of Caerleon on Usk, called himself Protestant and was proud of it, and your great-granduncle Hezekiah, feared Colquier Castletown, the red priest of Castletown, was a great man with the Methodists in his day, and the people flocked by their thousands when he administered the sacrament. I was born and brought up in Glamorganshire, and old men have wept as they told me of the weeping and contrition that there was when the red priest broke the bread and raised the cup. 
But you are a railer, and see nothing but the outside and the show. You are not worthy of this mystery that has been done here. I went out from his presence, rebuked indeed, and justly rebuked, but rather amazed. It is curiously true that the Welsh are still one people, one family almost, in a manner that the English cannot understand, but I had never thought that this old clergyman would have known anything of my ancestry or their doings. And as for my articles and such like, I knew that the country clergy sometimes read, but I had fancied my pronouncements sufficiently obscure, even in London, much more in Arfon. But so it happened, and so I had no explanation from the rector of Lantresant of the strange circumstance that his church was full of incense and odors of paradise. I went up and down the ways of Lantresant, wondering, and came to the harbor, which is a little place with little keys where some small coasting trade still lingers. A brigantine was at anchor here, and very lazily in the sunshine they were loading it with anthracite, for it is one of the oddities of Lantresant that there is a small colliery in the heart of the wood on the hillside. I crossed a causeway, which parts the outer harbor from the inner harbor, and settled down on a rocky beach hidden under a leafy hill. The tide was going out, and some children were playing on the wet sand, while two ladies, their mothers, I suppose, talked together as they sat comfortably on their rugs at a little distance from me. At first they talked of the war, and I made myself deaf, for of that talk one gets enough, and more than enough, in London. Then there was a period of silence, and the conversation had passed to quite a different topic when I caught the thread of it again. I was sitting on the further side of a big rock, and I do not think that the two ladies had noticed my approach. However, though they spoke of strange things, they spoke of nothing which made it necessary for me to announce my presence. And after all, one of them was saying, what is it all about? I can't make out what is to come to the people. This speaker was a Welsh woman. I recognized the clear, overemphasized consonants and a faint suggestion of an accent. Her friend came from the Midlands, and it turned out that they had only known each other for a few days. Theirs was a friendship of the beach and of bathing. Such friendships are common at a small seaside place. There is certainly something odd about the people here. I have never been to Lantresant before, you know. Indeed, this is the first time we've been in Wales for our holidays, and knowing nothing about the ways of the people, and not being accustomed to hear Welsh spoken, I thought perhaps it must be my imagination. But you think there really is something a little queer? Oh, I can tell you this that I have been in two minds whether or not I should write to my husband and ask him to take me and the children away. You know where I am, at Mrs. Morgan's, and the Morgan's sitting-room is just the other side of the passage, and sometimes they leave the door open so that I can hear what they say quite plainly, and you see I understand the Welsh, though they don't know it, and I hear them saying the most alarming things. What sort of things? Well, indeed, it sounds like some kind of a religious service, but it's not Church of England, I know that. Old Morgan begins it, and the wife and children answer. Something like, Blessed be God for the messengers of paradise. Blessed be his name for paradise in the meat and in the drink. Thanksgiving for the old offering. Thanksgiving for the appearance of the old altar. Praise for the joy of the ancient garden. Praise for the return of those that have been long absent. And all that sort of thing is nothing but madness. Depend upon it, said the lady from the Midlands, there's no real harm in it. They're dissenters, some new sect, I dare say. You know, some dissenters are very queer in their ways. Well, all that is like no dissenters that I've ever known in all my life, whatever, replied the Welsh lady somewhat vehemently with a very distinct intonation of the land. 
And have you heard them speak of the bright light that shone at midnight from the church? Chapter 3 A Secret in a Secret Place Now here was I, altogether at a loss and quite bewildered. The children broke into the conversation of the two ladies and cut it all short, just as the midnight lights from the church came on the field, and when the little girls and boys went back again to the sands whooping, the tide of talk had turned, and Mrs. Harland and Mrs. Williams were quite safe and at home with Janie's measles and a wonderful treatment for infantile earache, as exemplified in the case of Trevor. There was no more to be got out of them, evidently, so I left the beach, crossed the harbor causeway, and drank beer at the fisherman's rest, till it was time to climb up two miles of deep lane and catch the train for Penvro, where I was staying." and I went up the lane, as I say, in a kind of amazement, and not so much, I think, because of evidences and hints of things strange to the senses, such as the savor of incense where no incense had smoked for three hundred and fifty years and more, or the story of bright light shining from the dark closed church at dead of night, as because of that sentence of thanksgiving, for paradise in meat and in drink. For the sun went down and the evening fell as I climbed the long hill through the deep woods and the high meadows, and the scent of all the green things rose from the earth and from the heart of the wood, and at a turn of the lane far below was the misty glimmer of the still sea, and from far below its deep murmur sounded as it washed on the little hidden enclosed bay where L'Entresant stands. And I thought, if there be paradise in meat and in drink, so much the more is there paradise in the scent of the green leaves at evening and in the appearance of the sea, and in the redness of the sky. And there came to me a certain vision of a real world about us all the while, of a language that was only secret because we would not take the trouble to listen to it and discern it. It was almost dark when I got to the station, and here were the few feeble oil lamps lit, glimmering in that lonely land where the way is long from farm to farm. The train came on its way, and I got into it, and just as we moved from the station, I noticed a group under one of those dim lamps. A woman and her child had got out, and they were being welcomed by a man who had been waiting for them. I had not noticed his face as I stood on the platform, but now I saw it as he pointed down the hill toward L'Entresant, and I think I was almost frightened. He was a young man, a farmer's son, I would say, dressed in rough brown clothes and as different from old Mr. Evans, the rector, as one man might be from another. But on his face, as I saw it in the lamplight, there was the like brightening that I had seen on the face of the rector. It was an illuminated face, glowing with an ineffable joy, and I thought it rather gave light to the platform lamp that received light from it. The woman and her child, I inferred, were strangers to the place, and had come to pay a visit to the young man's family, they had looked about them in bewilderment, half-alarmed, before they saw him, and then his face was radiant in their sight. They had looked about them in bewilderment, half-alarmed, before they saw him, and then his face was radiant in their sight, and it was easy to see that all their troubles were ended and over. A wayside station, and a darkening country, and it was as if they were welcomed by shining immortal gladness, even into paradise." But though there seemed, in a sense, light all about my ways, I was myself still quite bewildered. I could see, indeed, that something strange had happened, or was happening, in the little town hidden under the hill, but there was so far no clue to the mystery, or rather, the clue had been offered to me, and I had not taken it. 
I had not even known that it was there, since we do not so much as see what we have determined without judging to be incredible, even though it be held up before our eyes. The dialogue that the Welsh Mrs. Williams had reported to her English friend might have set me on the right way, but the right way was outside all my limits of possibility, outside the circle of my thought. The paleontologist might see monstrous significant marks in the slime of a riverbank, but he would never draw the conclusions that his own peculiar science would seem to suggest to him. He would choose any explanation rather than the obvious, since the obvious would also be the outrageous, according to our established habit of thought, which we deem final. The next day, I took all these strange things with me for consideration to a certain place that I knew of not far from Penvro. I was now in the early stages of the jigsaw process, or rather I had only a few pieces before me, and, to continue the figure, my difficulty was this, that though the markings on each piece seemed to have design and significance, yet I could not make the wildest guess as to the nature of the whole picture, of which these were the parts. I had clearly seen that there was a great secret. I had seen that on the face of the young farmer on the platform of Lantresant Station, and in my mind there was all the while the picture of him going down the dark, steep, winding lane that led to the town and the sea, going down through the heart of the wood with light about him. But there was bewilderment in the thought of this and in the endeavor to match it with the perfumed church and the scraps of talk that I had heard and the rumor of midnight brightness. And though Penvro is by no means populous, I thought I would go to a certain solitary place called the Old Camp Head, which looks toward Cornwall, and to the great deeps that roll beyond Cornwall to the far ends of the world, a place where fragments of dreams, they seemed such then, might perhaps be gathered into the clearness of vision. It was some years since I had been to the Head, and I had gone on that last time, and on a former visit by the cliffs, a rough and difficult path. Now I chose a landward way, which the county map seemed to justify, though doubtfully as regarded the last part of the journey. So I went inland and climbed the hot summer by-roads, till I came at last to a lane which gradually turned turfy and grass-grown, and then on high ground ceased to be. It left me at a gate in a hedge of old thorns, and across the field beyond there seemed to be some faint indications of a track. One would judge that sometimes men did pass by that way, but not often. It was high ground, but not within sight of the sea, but the breath of the sea blew about the hedge of thorns and came with a keen savor to the nostrils. The ground sloped gently from the gate and then rose again to a ridge where a white farmhouse stood all alone. I passed by this farmhouse, threading an uncertain way, followed a hedgerow doubtfully, and saw suddenly before me the old camp and beyond it the sapphire plain of waters in the mist where sea and sky met. Steep from my feet the hill fell away, a land of gorse blossom, red gold and mellow, of glorious purple heather. It fell into a hollow that went down, shining with rich green bracken to the glimmering sea, and before me and beyond the hollow rose a height of turf, bastioned at the summit with the awful age-old walls of the old camp. Green rounded circumvallations, wall within wall, tremendous with their myriad years upon them. Within these smoothed green mounds, looking across the shining and changing of the waters in the happy sunlight, I took out the bread and cheese and beer that I had carried in a bag, and ate and drank and lit my pipe, and set myself to think over the enigmas of L'Entresant. And I had scarcely done so when, a good deal to my annoyance, 
A man came climbing up over the green ridges and took up his stand close by and stared out to sea. He nodded to me and began with, Fine weather for the harvest, in the approved manner, and so sat down and engaged me in a net of talk. He was of Wales, it seemed, but from a different part of the country, and was staying for a few days with relations at the white farmhouse which I had passed on my way. His tale of nothing flowed on to his pleasure and my pain till he fell suddenly on Montresant and its doings. I listened then with wonder, and here is his tale condensed, though it must be clearly understood that the man's evidence was only second-hand. He had heard it from his cousin, the farmer. So, to be brief, it appeared that there had been a long feud at Montresant between a local solicitor, Louis Prothero, we will say, and a farmer named James. There had been a quarrel about some trifle which had grown more and more bitter as the two parties forgot the merits of the original dispute, and by some means or other, which I could not well understand, the lawyer had got the small freeholder under his thumb. James, I think, had given a bill of sale in a bad season, and Prothero had bought it up, and the end was that the farmer was turned out of the old house and was lodging in a cottage. People said he would have to take a place on his own farm as a laborer. He went about in dreadful misery, piteous to see. It was thought by some that he might very well murder the lawyer if he met him. They did meet in the middle of the marketplace at Lantresant one Saturday in June. The farmer was a little black man, and he gave a shout of rage, and the people were rushing at him to keep him off Prothero. And then, said my informant, I'll tell you what happened. This lawyer, as they tell me, he's a great big brawny fellow with a big jaw and a wide mouth and a red face and red whiskers. And there he was in his black coat and his high hard hat and all his money at his back, as you may say. And indeed, he did fall down on his knees in the dust there in the street in front of Philip James. And everyone could see that terror was upon him. And he did beg Philip James's pardon and beg of him to have mercy and he did implore him by God and man and the saints of paradise. And my cousin, John Jenkins, the Penmore, he do tell me that the tears were falling from Louis Prothero's eyes like the rain, and he put his hand into his pocket and drew out the deed of Pantyrios, Philip James's old farm, that was, and did give him the farm back and a hundred pounds for the stock that was on it, and two hundred pounds, all in notes of the bank for amendment and consolation. And then, from what they do tell me, all the people did go mad, crying and weeping and calling out all manner of things at the top of their voices. And alas, nothing would do, but they must all go up to the churchyard. And there, Philip James and Louis Prothero, they swear friendship to one another for a long age before the old cross, and everyone sings praises. And my cousin, he do declare to me that there were men standing in that crowd that he did never see before in Lantresant in all his life, and his heart was shaken within him as if he had been in a whirlwind. I listened to all this in silence. I said then, What does your cousin mean by that? Men that he had never seen in Lantresant? What men? The people, he said very slowly, call them the fishermen. And suddenly there came into my mind the rich fisherman, who in the old legend guards the holy mystery of the grail. All right, and that is the end of part one of The Great Return by Arthur Mackin. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you, uh, everybody who has uh, uh, kicked into Patreon or has written a review um, or given me a rating. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, 
I uh, just yesterday, as I'm recording this, it's Saturday night as I'm recording this, Friday uh, marked two weeks straight of over 400 hits every single day, which is, it's just astounding to me that, that I've got that kind of an audience. I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's, it's just astounding to me. I know that doesn't really like, I know that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. And when you're talking about podcasts, like, like that's nothing like my bim bam gets, you know, 10 times that amount every day, at least probably more. Um, if I were to do it, try to do a show at the Cobb energy center, I wouldn't sell it out. Um, but, uh, it's, it's just 400 hits a day for two weeks straight. Like, like I remember two years ago when I was like, when was the last time I had zero hits in a day? I feel like, like it's been a long time since I've had less than zero hits. And then I was like, you know, Oh, I've had, you know, it's been a week straight of over 50 and Oh, it's been a week straight of over a hundred. And now it's two weeks straight of over 400. And it's just, I, I am, I am, I, I, I don't know what I want to say about that or how to express what I'm feeling about that. Other than to say that I am literally flabbergasted and it's, it's just astounding to me. So thank you all so very much. I really, really, really do appreciate Everybody who listens every week, it means so much to me that, you know, I don't know. I don't like, I don't, I don't want to cast aspirations on anybody who like, why ever you listen to the show, I, I am grateful for why ever you listen to it. Um, even if like my mother-in-law, you just listen to it to go to sleep. My mother-in-law, I don't listen to your show. I just turn it on. I'm immediately asleep. That's all I use it for. And I'm like, great. Thanks. That Okay. Well whatever gets you, whatever gets you there. Like that's awesome. And thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Feel free to kick in on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast. Give a listen to, uh, into the black by William Meikle, a collection of, um, 14 tales of Lovecraftian horror. And, uh, it's like, you know, like I say every week, the stories are all really good and you will enjoy the collection. I read it. So there you go. Um, I think that's about it. We will conclude this story next week because it's not it's not super long, um, but uh, it is longer than one episode. So, uh, but we'll conclude it next week, and then the October project starts. That's really exciting because I'm only a little bit over halfway through on the recording of it, so I really got to sit down and get my budding gear on that. So, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Feel free to leave me a rating and review on iTunes, and I will see you next week. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. Um, thank you to, uh, see, this is probably going to go in the blooper reel, but I don't remember everyone's name. So I have to look it up before I record. And one thing I never do is look it up before I record because I'm a dumb asshole. Reuter apparently thought he had made his simple statement of the facts of the case, had thereby done his duty. And so I didn't need to put that in there. It's like I'm telling a story. When I tell a story, I tell a story with sound effects. I do little sound effects. Um, and I just that just slipped in there. And now I'm kind of tempted to leave it. There were better things and more relevant things behind the few lines dealing with Lantrissant. Oh, Welsh! Ah, Welsh like French. Ugh. Hold on, please. I gotta look up the pronunciation.
Forvo says Lantrisan. So that's what I'm going to say. If I'm wrong about that, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to do a whole nother Dunedin thing. I don't want that to happen again. Thank you. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. You're all great. Don't want to hear about it if I'm wrong. <clears throat> On that note, though, do I have anybody from Wales who listens? I don't know. But if I have any Welsh listeners, I would like to know. Please, please email me, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. I would really be interested to know. Okay. Not on the surface, I must say, for the cutting I have preserved it. I have no idea how I'm supposed to read this sentence, so I'm just going to take a big old swing at it, and <laughs> good luck to you listening. Not on the surface, I must say, for the cutting I have preserved it reads as follows. There was benediction in Suntory. What? Hold, please. I need to look up that pronunciation now. It's pronounced century, and it's a type of flower. We have all learned something today. Do, 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 do. All right. Where's my book? Why, old Mr. Evans, the rector, looked upon colored stoles as the very robe of Satan, and his... Why, old Mr. Evans, the rector, looked upon colored stoles as the very robe of Satan... Let's try that again, because I'm not getting that sentence read properly. Why, old Mr. Evans, the rector, looked upon colored stoles as the very robe of Satan and his angels, as things dear to the heart of the Pope of Rome. This sentence makes absolutely no sense at all. I want you to understand that, even though you're listening to this at the end of the story. I want you to understand that this sentence makes absolutely no sense at all. Because he's talking about it belonging to Satan, and then he's talking about it belonging at the heart of the Pope of Rome. So I don't know what he's trying to say here, unless this is a whole Fox's Book of Martyrs thing where the Protestants are good and the Catholics are bad, which is entirely a possibility. But uh, I don't know, because when I was in high school and was forced to read Fox's Book of Martyrs in a literature class, I didn't read it because it was super boring. Why, old Mr. Evans, the rector, looked upon colored stoles as the very... See, still not getting the sentence right. Why, old Mr. Evans, the rector, looked upon colored stoles as the very robe of Satan and his angels, as things dear to the heart of the Pope of Rome. Now, I happen to have a slight acquaintance with the rector. Hold on. Ah, oh, God, I'm old. Ah, I sit cross-legged in this chair, and then I stretch out because my knees start to hurt, and it just hurts more. Ah, oh, because I'm old. <clears throat> this is going to be a hell of a blooper reel in this one. You have made some alterations in the service since I was last here. You use incense now? The old man looked at me strangely and hesitated. Uh, there's not going to be a Welsh accent. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what a Welsh accent is, so I'm not even going to attempt to make one. I was born and brought up in Glamorganshire, and old men have wept as they told me of the weeping and contrition that there, that, oh man, too many words. <sighs> and it was easy to see that all their troubles were ended over. 